Thanks for tuning in to High Point Assembly's podcast, where you're going to hear a life-giving message that we hope will encourage you no matter where you are in your walk with Christ. Check out our website at highpointassembly.org for more podcasts, information, and how to join us live in person or online every Sunday. We hope this message blesses you wherever you may be listening from. And remember, no matter where you're at, you belong. This morning, we're going to continue in our series uh, from the book of Colossians that we have titled Made for More, where over the past several weeks, we have been talking about how our relationship with Christ should generate a new kind of life within us personally. We should begin to view ourselves differently, but most importantly, we should begin to live differently than before by walking in a new way, by shedding all those things that we were once clothed with and now wearing this new wardrobe that we talked about three years ago, three, three weeks ago, excuse me, that, that was provided to us by Christ through what he did on the cross. Because we are now truly a new creation in Christ. And that is our identity as followers of Jesus. Well, today we're going to read from Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 through 25. We are also going to go one verse into chapter 4. So you can go ahead and turn there. If you don't have your Bibles, it will be up on the screen behind me, and you can follow along. But while you're doing that, let me say that this is a part of the Apostle Paul's letter that has to do with our earthly relationships. Because if you look at the subject matter of this entire study, our new identity in Christ shouldn't just change the way we live, but it should also dramatically affect our personal relationships as well. And in light of this, the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Colossae now turns to our earthly relationships. And Paul was challenging them as he is challenging us today to rethink the husband and wife relationship to rethink the parent and child relationship, to rethink the employer-employee relationship, and ultimately our relationships with each other within the family of God. So let's read the scripture from Colossians 3, 18 through 25, and chapter 4, verses 1. I'll be reading from the New International Version. It says, Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord Do not and not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. And then on to chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. And you've got to understand, in light of the culture in which the Apostle Paul is writing, what he's teaching here was both radical and revolutionary. And it's all based upon that verse that we covered last week in Colossians 3.17 that says, and whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So Paul begins by calling us to rethink the husband and wife relationship. And you must first understand that in that culture and in that time, a woman had no rights. Her husband could abuse her. Her husband could, could be unfaithful to her. He could hurt her in any way. She had no legal recourse to protect herself or to get out of, of an abusive situation. And so Paul comes along and he teaches this principle of reciprocity in marriage relationships as well as many other types of relationships. He begins in verse 18 by saying, Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Then on the reciprocal side of the marriage relationship, he says in verse 19 to the husbands, Husbands, love your wives 
and do not be harsh with them. So let's start with verse 18, because I have found a great many people who have a hard time with this word, submit. It's not a very popular word in our culture. And furthermore, it's one of the most difficult biblical concepts for us to grasp. So I want to spend a few minutes talking about biblical submission. And the first thing that you must know is that submission is not limited to wives alone. We are called to submit to our government. In Romans 13:1. We are called to submit ourselves unto God in James 4:17. And in Ephesians 5:21, there's a principle that Paul teaches to the family of God when he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Paul instructs that submission is to be a general attitude within the body of Christ. It is, be, it is to be the general attitude within the marriage, for every family, for every ministry. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives submit, husbands submit, kids submit. It's a frequent concept that is found in the Bible where self-sacrifice is required in each circumstance and it is viewed as a service unto God. But this is not the only time that the Apostle Paul writes about submission of the wife. He also wrote in Ephesians 5, 22 through 24, wives, submit, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit, submit to their husbands in everything. Now, before anybody gets all bent out of shape about Paul saying, wives, submit to your husbands, I want to start by telling you what biblical submission is not. Biblical submission does not mean that the wife is in any way inferior to or less than her husband. Biblical submission does not mean that the wife becomes a passive participant in their marriage. Biblical submission is not putting the husband in place of Christ as if the husband has some sort of absolute authority. Therefore, it does not mean putting the will of the husband before the will of God. It means that if a husband tells a wife to do something that is against the will of God or that is contrary to the Holy Scriptures, she can and should say no. Biblical submission also does not mean agreeing with everything your husband says and giving up any kind of independent thought. Biblical submission does does not mean that a wife gets her personal or spiritual strength from her husband. She gets her strength from the Lord. Biblical submission does not mean that a wife should give up her efforts to influence, to guide, or to help her husband to be conformed more into the image of Christ. She should pray for him as the leader that God wants him to be. And lastly, biblical submission is not a demeaning position for anyone. It is, in fact, a sign of spiritual maturity and spiritual strength. You know, it's interesting as we address this subject that the thought never ever crosses our mind that perhaps Jesus would have found it demeaning to submit to the will of the Father, including his Father's plan that he would go to the cross. And the reason we don't talk about that is because Jesus didn't. Jesus did it with joy, and it was voluntary on his part. So to the wives here today and those who someday want to be a wife, submission means that you are offering your talents and your abilities, your wisdom and your mind. You are offering your gifts and your whole self into this relationship. But understand it is within that relationship that the biblical example for the family is that the husband carries the responsibilities for his family. In fact, one day, every one of us men, we will answer to God for how we carried out those responsibilities to our wife, to our children, to our grandchildren. So when, we sub- when you submit to your husband, you allow him to develop into the kind of leader that God wants him to be. And you do so even during times when you don't think his leadership is maybe being stellar. You see, you don't want to circumvent what God is trying to accomplish in his life by taking over that leadership role yourself. Because if you do, 
He will never rise to the occasion. He will never develop the skills that God innately gifted him with. By submitting to your husband, the Apostle Paul writes that you are actually submitting yourself to the Lord. The wife that submits to her husband says, in honor of who submitted everything for me, this is what I bring into this relationship. Here's my intelligence. Here are my resources, my skills, my wisdom. I freely contribute them to this relationship, and together we will serve the Lord. Now, in verse 19, we see the reciprocal side of mutual submission in the marriage. When Paul writes this, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. This is how the husband submits. And Paul has a lot more to say on this subject in Ephesians 5, 25 to 33. You can follow me. It'll be behind me. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Gentlemen, the ultimate act of submission in the marriage for you is to love your wife to the point that you would give your life for her. Yes, you love her in a thousand other ways and a thousand other acts, but you would also do so in the big act of giving your life for her if it was required. Paul says, love your wives, and please understand, husbands, this is a command. There is no qualifier to be found in that scripture or any scripture regarding the marriage. It doesn't say love your wife if she's the best-looking woman on planet Earth. It doesn't say love your wife if she deserves it. It says love your wife with a commitment of your will. Don't fall into the trap that says, I just don't love you anymore. If I had a dollar for every time I heard that statement during marriage counseling, I'd be a rich man. If you don't love somebody anymore, it's because you have made the choice not to love them anymore. Let me tell you what's happened to people who say those words. They've quit doing those loving things. And subsequently, they have forgotten what loving actions looks like, looks like, or even feels like. When you quit expressing love in your daily interactions, love becomes a foreign concept to you. And in the absence of it, you think that you've fallen out of love. No one falls out of love. You've just convinced yourself through your lack of participation in the loving process that you just don't love someone anymore. Love isn't a feeling, ladies and gentlemen. Love is an action word. And notice it doesn't say husbands make love to your wife, although a sexual intimacy is certainly an important part of the marriage covenant. But the kind of love Paul is referring to here is God's kind of a love. It means to honor, and it means to value, and it means to, to respect and to protect and to guard. It also means to plan for loving her. It means to work on loving her, not just on those special days and anniversaries when you're expected to do so. Paul also says, men, put off the harshness. There's no place for that in the marriage covenant. There's no place for sarcasm. There's no place for caustic bitterness. There's no place for violence. There's no place for abuse of any kind. One of my fears when I teach on a passage like this one from Colossians with instructions for the wives to submit to their husbands is the possibility that, that someone here or someone watching in line online might be living 
in an abusive relationship with a husband who is physically or emotionally or sexually abusive, and yes, even spiritually abusive. It's a possibility that someone might be living in an abusive situation with a husband who, who is physically, emotionally, or sexually abusive. Let me, let me point out to the wives here today, this is not blind submission that I'm talking about this morning. Paul says it's the kind of submission as is fitting in the Lord. Wives don't have to submit to husbands who would urge them to do immoral things. Wives don't have to submit to husbands who use physical abuse to either their wife or to their children. Biblical submission does not mean living in fearful intimidation of a husband who can strike out with physical abuse. Biblical sub submission does not mean living in fearful intimidation of a husband who will manipulate through emotional abuse. Biblical submission does not mean submitting to a husband who takes sexually from her or who sexually assaults or who coerces or traumatizes his wife. And yes, a wife need not submit to a husband who rules or who demands or who manipulates through spiritual abuse. What do I mean by that? I mean husbands who twist the scriptures and the truth that is found in God's word to suit his purposes and his schemes while at the same time keeping his wife in check and in a box. This is not as is fitting unto the Lord. And I feel I need to say something this morning under no uncertain terms. If you are living, ladies, with a chronically violent individual, the wisest thing that you can do is to remove yourself from that situation. You need to do it now, and you need to do it quickly. You don't need to learn to be mutually submissive to a physically abusive man. And if you are in that kind of a situation, you need to tell somebody what is going on in your life, break that silence, and you need to escape. And you need to leave for your sake and you need to leave for the sake of your scared children. God did not create you to be a punching bag. Have I made myself eminently clear this morning? All right. Now, in saying all of that, you've got to understand that all too often, this was the culture that Paul was teaching and that Paul was writing to. So he comes along with this radical teaching that says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord, and for the husbands to love their wives. Love them as Christ loved the church. Don't ever be harsh with them. This is how, in God's way of doing things, we will see our marriages succeed. And we won't just see them succeed, but we will see them thrive. Well, then in verses 20 and 21, Paul calls us to rethink the parent-child relationship. And again, in this culture that Paul was writing to, children had no real rights. In that culture, parents could even sell their children into slavery if they wanted to. And so it is in that environment that Paul writes in verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Paul says, kids, obey your parents and do it with a willing spirit not with a resentful attitude. So to the children in this room today and the children who are watching online, do you know what you could do to honor your parents in the greatest ways possible? If when they asked you to do something, you follow through when you do it the first time they ask you to do it. You actually obey your parents' wishes. The text says that when you obey like that, you please the Lord. See, God is trying to teach you something about respect for authority. Because when you learn to respect parental authority, you'll learn to respect his spiritual authority in your life as well. And when you learn to respect parental authority, you will also learn to respect other authority over you in your life, like your teachers, like your employer. You see, there's always going to be authority in your life doesn't matter how old you are. You're always going to have authority above you, always. Therefore, you must learn to submit to that authority so that your life may go well, so that your life will prosper. So when your parents ask you to do your homework 
or to help with the dishes or to take out the trash, then you follow Nike's lead and you just do it. When you've been on your computer for hours and they say it's time to turn it off, it's time to go clean your room, you just do it. When you get in the habit of doing that, it will serve you well in this life. Well, on the reciprocal side of this, to the fathers or parents, Paul writes in verse 21, fathers do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Paul teaches parents to draw their kids in, not to drive them away in such that they would become embittered or that they would become discouraged. The Bible doesn't say we are to force feed our kids or shove things down their throats. Instead, we are to raise them up without embittering them, without discouraging them. It's suggesting that, that parents take a wise and discerning and progressive and loving and nurturing approach to raising their children. And gradually and appropriately over time, granting them more and more freedom. You know, there are primarily two ways that parents can either embitter or exasperate their children. One is, is by being too strict with them holding on so tightly and not giving them any freedom whatsoever. And the one that is equally as bad is by giving them total freedom. Because in short order, that will make them an insecure human being. You know, one of the most spectacular sights in all of nature is when a mother eagle is trying to teach her eaglets to fly. And I don't know if any of you have ever read on this or if you've ever seen any films about this. But when a mother thinks it's time for her little baby eaglets to fly, she stirs up the nest. She literally makes the, the nest uncomfortable for them to, to lay in. And she loads one of those little eaglets on her back and she flies up high into the sky until you just see this little speck up there and she turns over. And that eaglet's going like this. He's just flopping 100 miles an hour down. And you can imagine what's going on in his mind. He's sputtering downward. Of course, he doesn't know yet how to fly. So then the mother swoops down, puts that eaglet up on her back, and she flies back up into the sky almost to the point where you can't even see her anymore. And she, she turns over, and she lets that thing go flying down again. Lord knows how fast it's flying towards the ground. Gravity's a beautiful thing. And then she'll do it a third time. And can you imagine what's going on in the mind of that little eaglet about the third time he's going up? He's thinking, is this really necessary? <laughs> but finally, after a number of attempts, these little things learn how to fly. They're forced to learn how to fly. You see, from the moment we bring our children home from the hospital, there's a releasing process that goes on. After about six months, you're sitting down reading a magazine or you're distracted and all of a sudden you look down and your child isn't at your feet anymore. He's gone off into another room. It's called freedom. It gets tougher on the first day of school or when you drop your kid off at the bus stop for the first time. And I wonder how many parents secretly followed that bus all the way to school to make sure that it got there. Yeah, I'm sure you did. Maybe when they get a little bit older, it's camp. It's their first church camp they go to. And they call home on that first night and they say, I'm really homesick. Can you come and get me, mom, dad? And you say, well, we really miss you too, but it'll be, you'll be okay. Hang in there. You can toughen it out. Call back tomorrow night and leave a message because mom and I are going out of town for a couple days. <laughs> and we do. Whenever she went to camp, we went out of town. And guess what? They survived that ordeal, didn't they? They survived it. And you've taken one more step in, in gradually releasing them to learn to fly on their own. Eventually comes the most difficult moment of all when the child leaves home or gets married. And I shared with you last year how I cried like a madman after I dropped Brooke off at Grand Canyon University. I left my baby, my one and only child, it, you know, 900 miles away. And I cried all the way home. I've watched dads blubber all the way down the aisle as they brought their daughter down to, 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 to marry. And I want to remind the children in this room, there also comes a time for you to get out. <laughs> there comes a time for you to leave the nest. I once listened to a comedian do a little bit about him and his wife when their 30-year-old son had to move back into their house with his children. And I'll never forget what that comedian said. He said, this is why there is death, people. So to the adult children here today, there comes a time for you to leave, a time when you have to be like one of those little eaglets and you need to fly away. 
and you need to have life on your own. So the art of parenting is to realize that there is this gradual um, letting go stage that goes on all the time. You're learning what the right amount of freedom is and it, and it, so, so that it doesn't exasperate and yet it gives them protection and security. And I realize it's a moving target and it's changing all the time. But it's important to remember your children are God's children first and they are yours secondly. You have been given stewardship over those precious little lives and our job is to develop those lives as best as we can. And therefore, God asks us to raise them without embittering them. Instead, give them loving direction. If you do so, you will have positive results. You know, it's interesting. Paul hits on the relationships that probably take up the vast majority of our time in the marriage and in the family. But now, in this next section of this passage, he directs us to rethink the employer and the employee relationship. He refers to slaves and masters here. And again, there are some cultural issues going on, but the application for us today is the employer-employee relationship. Now, in talking about the slave-master relationship, there are some problems with these verses uh, that, that, that get presented that I think need to be addressed first. Beginning in verse 22 of chapter 3, Paul has instructions for slaves, and in chapter 4, verse 1, he has some instructions for the masters. I'll read it again. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Down to Colossians 4.1. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. A common question that arises whenever you read this scripture is, why doesn't the Apostle Paul use this as an opportunity to speak out boldly against slavery in his day? It is estimated at that time in the Roman Empire, there were 75 to 80 million people living there, and a third to half of them were slaves. Slaves had very few rights, and in many cases, they were very much abused. So why doesn't Paul use this as an opportunity to say, hey, you slaves, it's time to rebel against this injustice and to declare your freedom? Why didn't he say slavery is wrong? Rebel against your masters. Why doesn't Paul say in turn to the slave owners and you masters, release your slaves and set them free? Well, it's obvious that Paul was opposed to slavery. In fact, if you recall earlier in one of our, one of our sessions in this, this series, in verse 11, he said, in Christ there is no slave or free. So what makes you wonder why he doesn't organize a protest rally and have everybody carry signs that slavery is wrong. Instead, he says in verse 22, slaves obey your earthly masters in everything. And the reciprocal part of that message is found in Colossians 4.1, and masters provide your slaves with what is right and what is fair. Well, I think the answer behind what Paul, why Paul doesn't lash out against slavery lies in this principle. You see, real change begins what? With a changed heart, right? We, I think we all know that. Well, the, um, real, for there to be real change in any kind of a relationship, there must be an, in, an internal, internal, excuse me, recalibration. There has to be a 180 at the very core of it. Let me try to explain what I mean through some hot button topics. I am not in favor of illegal drug use. And my heart literally breaks for people who get caught in that vicious cycle and their lives get destroyed by it. But rather than becoming a narcotics cop, I am more concerned about why people are so unhappy, why they are so empty, that they seek to fulfill that emptiness in their heart, that void in their life, with chemical stimulants. What is going on deep down in their heart and their soul? I am not at all in favor of sexually explicit material. I hate and I loathe pornography, and I hate the fact that it is available and accessible on the internet to anyone. In, fa in fact, I am a harsh opponent 
of the entire sex industry and what it does to people. But rather than, than picket and protest the suppliers and the producers and the sponsors of, of this kind of smut, I am more concerned about what goes on in the heart of a person who feels this need to seek out sexual gratification in these ways. I am not at all a supporter of abortion. In fact, I abhor even, even the, the, the idea of it because I value all human life. And I know that by us ending a human life, it grieves the heart of our Heavenly Father. But rather than standing on a street corner, protesting and holding up a sign, I'm more concerned about changing people's hearts. Hearts that would lead people to believe or to see that a child is anything less than a sacred soul who was made uniquely in the image of our Heavenly Father. And I am also concerned about people who had to make that painful decision at one point in their life for them to find healing because they need healing for that decision. You see, real change happens with a changed heart. And that's what the message of the cross of Jesus is all about. You can change laws. You can change societal structures. But if hearts don't change, what good does that do? But if enough hearts start to change, then what do you think will happen to our laws and our structures? They will change as well. This is why I think instead of dealing with the symptom of slavery in this passage, Paul goes after the source, which is the heart. Paul knew, as I said, that real change begins in the heart. You see, there had already been several revolts, several attempts among the slaves in the Roman Empire that had failed. Many of you know the story of Spartacus, a slave who led a revolt that was crushed, literally crushed with an iron fist. And the results of that revolt led to even harsher conditions for the slaves. Paul didn't want that to happen. And so instead, he does a revolutionary kind of teaching that goes after the heart, a teaching that changes the thinking and the heart of people. And I believe, I believe with all my heart that, that Paul was personally and deliberately sowing seeds. They were seeds that would eventually lead to the overthrow of slavery and the harsh treatment of women and children. He knew that if the love and the grace of God could change people's hearts, it would eventually change the world's systems as well. In fact, if you go back and you study historically, that's exactly what happened. People were astonished in the early New Testament church when they saw slave and master in the same church worshiping God together. The love of Jesus Christ started changing people's hearts. And their heart, as their hearts changed, the evil systems of the world began to change as well not through a violent revolt, which could have been crushed, but with a change of heart. And eventually the slaves were set free because real change happens, not by changing the system, but by changing hearts that end up changing the system. And I believe that that is true to this day. I hope that is helpful in understanding the context, context of these verses. But I want to go back to talking about the workplace and the relationship between the employer and the employee. In most workplaces today, people have little signs or signals that the boss or the manager or the CEO is coming through your section. And what happens is when these signs are made, the, the, uh, the intensity of the work goes through the roof because the boss is there. What Paul is saying here is to work with a sincere heart. Work as if you are working for the Lord, not like you're working for another human being. Raise, in other words, raise your intensity level. Now, in some cases, when you raise the intensity level like this, simply put, you're going to, be, you're going to upset some of your fellow workers. Why is that? Because your contribution in that workplace is outshining theirs, and they're not going to like that at all. Working as for the Lord should always be our approach as followers of Jesus Christ. And the truth is, when you work as unto the Lord, you're going to make some people angry. But understand, whenever you operate with that kind of a work ethic, you're more than likely going to get ahead in that job. Because in the marketplace today, almost anyone who consistently works better advances, especially when you have the right attitude in doing it. Now, I know there's exceptions to that rule, but that is generally a tried and true reality in the world in which we live. Every day at work, 
We should have a sign out in front of us that reads, it is the Lord Jesus that I am serving. You need to put that on a card and put it on your computer screen or, or on your job site or in your toolbox or, or whatever you do. You are not just working for someone. You are working for the Lord. Your employer may pay your salary, but it is God who you are ultimately working for and who you are ultimately trying to please. Because let me tell you, if you please the Lord, you will greatly please your employer. And if we keep that in mind, both the quality and the quantity of your work ought to improve because it is driven by our love for the Lord. Now, on the reciprocal side, and this was enormously revolutionary, verse 1 of chapter 4 has an application for employers today. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. I think the application for us today would be this. Employers Pay a fair wage for the work that you're asking people to do. And be fair in what you require and what you expect from them on a daily basis. Don't brag about being a Christian employer and operate that Christian business by refusing to pay your employees a fair wage for what they do. Don't, don't fail to share your profits with the people who helped you to earn those profits. Be generous also in your encouragement to them. Coach them with life-giving words. Everybody needs that kind of encouragement from time to time. And Paul teaches employers not to take on an attitude that says, well, this is my business, and I'll deal with people, and I'll handle my business the way that I feel is right. Paul says, you are a Christian, and it is not your business, and you need to start saying that this is God's business. I have a master in heaven who has put me in charge of leading and, and managing it, and therefore I must run my business as God would. I am responsible to him for what he has entrusted to me, and I will be accountable to him. Whenever we take on the mindset that everything we do, we do as unto the Lord, then literally everything changes. And through his writing, Paul has provided us with sound truths regarding the workplace and the relations between the employer and the employees. And if we would all heed his call, we would all prosper in greater ways. I want to jump ahead to Colossians chapter 4, verse 7. And I know that wasn't in our original scripture, but I want to do so. Next week when I end this series, we are going to cover Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. But for today's message, I want to look at verse 7. Start by looking at verse 7. When you look at verse 7 and you look at the verses that are following this, it appears like there's not much content to be found there. Pretty much, there are various kinds of greetings to different people. But since we are focusing on relationships today, I think it's important to read between the lines of some of these people who he's mentioned at the end of his letter. And when you do, you realize how rich Paul's words were and how much more meaning they had than just greetings and such. Paul is really challenging us to rethink our relationships that we have with one another, specifically in the household of faith. He means in the family, the family of God. We don't have much time left to go through these verses one by one, but I want to go through a couple passages to help us to see the marks that ought to be true of our relationships with one another. Look at verse 10. My fellow prisoner, Aristarchus, sends you his greetings as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instruction about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. In this passage, Paul refers to Aristarchus, who is a guy that had stuck with Paul through thick and through thin. He is an example of loyalty in a relationship with another person. In Acts chapter 19, Aristarchus was also with Paul in Ephesus, and this time, the people of Ephesus started to riot against Christianity, and they were crying out for the blood of the Apostle Paul. Since they couldn't find Paul, they grabbed Aristarchus. They pulled him into the arena, and he was beaten, and he barely escaped with his life. But he stood firm in the faith. He was a guy who stuck with it through thick and thin. In Acts 27, you will find Aristarchus with Paul once again when Paul is in the midst of a shipwreck. He is right there with him, beside him. In Acts 27.10, Paul refers to him as his fellow prisoner still by his side. Paul didn't have many loyal friends near the end of his life, but he had a few, and Aristarchus was one of them. 
Just think of all that they had been through together. Proverbs 17, 17 says, a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. You see, true friends don't bail on you when the going gets tough. They guard intimate knowledge and, and confidences of each other. They help you to see your spiritual blind spots. And there's got to be a lot of that kind of loyalty here in the family of High Point Assembly, the family of God. And then quickly, the last person I want to point out to you, because it would be easy to blow by this guy, in this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Colossae, it was hand-delivered by a man named Tychicus. Tychicus had been a friend of the Apostle Paul in prison, and Paul sent him to Colossae for a dual purpose. Look at verses 7 and 8. He says, Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister, a fellow servant in the Lord. I am sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. So Tychicus, Tychicus is going to give them an update on Paul, what he's doing in prison, and that he was sent there to encourage the other people. One of the marks of our relationships in the family of God ought to be encouragement. We ought to be encouraging one another whenever we can. And, when, and while Paul was sending him to encourage the people at this church in Colossae, Paul wrote about him. He wrote about Tychicus. Notice what he says in verse 7. He describes him as a dear brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant of the Lord. Think about that. Here's the guy delivering this letter. And as he's delivering this mail, Paul just affirms him with these words of encouragement. Just how much do you think that meant to Tychicus? You know, like obviously he's reading this letter on his way to Colossae and he's thinking, that, that's Paul talking about me. I know that had to make him feel good. We need to be better at encouraging one another within the family of God because everybody, every one of us needs to hear words of encouragement and we shouldn't withhold them from people who need them. We need to speak them from time to time. We need to encourage one another. We need to build each other up, I guess is what I'm saying in our Christian journey. Anthony, can you come forward and help me close this down? I'll never forget my first Sunday at work at Phoenix First Assembly. It's a big mega church down in Phoenix for those of you who haven't been here long. And I was on staff there for 12 years. And in those days, all the pastoral staff sat up on this big platform. I mean, this, the, the, the building is enormous, seats about 6,000 people. And they had this huge platform and we would set up there. And I always thought it was kind of weird, <laughs> to be honest with you, that we sat up there looking down on the people as they were worshiping. And uh, I remember how awkward it made me feel. Well, here I am, this rookie. I have no experience in ministry at all. And I know that the other pastors were summing me up. They were looking me up and down, wondering who this new guy was. Of course, some of them knew who I was, but they didn't know much about me. And, and lo and behold, Pastor Tommy Barnett can probably tell that I'm nervous. And he comes over to me. He says, I'd like you to sit next to me. I want the congregation to know who you are. I want them to know that you're my guy. You talk about feeling really good that morning. Man, oh man, that took the edge right off for me. If the man himself said, I want you to sit next to me and I want people to know you're my guy, what, what do you think that meant to me? It meant everything in the world. It wasn't anything that he had to do, but he chose to do it. And in doing so, he helped a very insecure new pastor to get his legs. I also remember my first Wednesday night when I was asked to preach my very first sermon. You talk about being nervous. I did my very best, and of course I walked away wondering what everybody else thought of what I did. I got back to my office and I picked up my cell phone and there was a voicemail there. And I listened to it and it was from Tommy Barnett telling me with his raspy voice, David, you did a phenomenal job. And how proud he was of me. Listen, I listened to that sermon. It was not a great sermon. You could see and you could feel and you could sense the nervousness in my voice and every word that I spoke. And it wasn't that deep of a message either. The people there just kind of put up with me. But Pastor Tommy Barnett took the time to encourage me. And again, you have no idea what that meant to a guy who needed to grow in what it was that he was doing. I'm wondering how many of you need some kind of encouragement right now. How many of you would, could use some soul-injecting, life-encouraging words from someone saying, hey, you're a faithful servant. 
you honor God in your life and in doing so you encourage me by the way you live your life maybe you say to a student you know you have no idea how bright your future is God has blessed you you are gifted by God maybe to an aging saint here in this congregation you say you have no idea what your faithfulness to God has meant to me as I've observed you over all of these years. The call of this final section of Colossians is about doing a 180 in our relationships and to start doing things in a meaningful and in a God-honoring way. It's a major part of this transformation process that we've been talking about as we become new creations in Christ Jesus and one that is easily recognized by those who surround us. I'd like to ask you all to stand to your feet with me. And I'd like to ask you and those who are online watching to go ahead and bow your heads if you would. See, rather than me apply this teaching today, I want you to just take a minute and allow the Holy Spirit to, to apply it to your life. You know, the Bible says how good and pleasant it is when we dwell together in unity. So what do you believe that God is calling you to rethink today? Maybe it's the husband and wife relationship that needs some attention. Maybe it is the parent-child relationship that needs some work. Maybe it's the relationships you have in your workplace. Maybe it's in your family. Maybe it's with someone here in this church. How good and pleasant it is when we radically rethink our relationships. We break down the walls that would divide us and, and that, that would, so that we can dwell together in unity as the Lord has asked us to. But in talking of relationships, the most important relationship of all is the one that we have with Christ Jesus. Perhaps you're here today or perhaps you're watching online and you've never asked Christ to be the Lord of your life. You can do that right now. The Bible says to receive salvation, you must believe and confess. You must believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the only way to the Father, that he died a horrendous death, the blood that he shed on the cross atones or covers or wipe away your, wipes away your sin. And all you need to do is ask him to forgive you of your sin, and he will. The confession part is just saying those words in prayer to him. Jesus, I believe in you. I believe you're the only way. Today I give you my life, and I ask you to forgive me of my sin. You can do that in this prayer time that we're gonna have here in just a minute. So as we close today in prayer, you just seem to simply pray a prayer of belief and confession to God. And if you're already saved, I wanna ask you to pray for all of your earthly relationships. Determine that you want them all to, to operate in love and in integrity and in peace. This altar is open to anybody who might want to come down and bow at the altar. It's always open. Feel free to come down here and pray if that's what you prefer to do. And for the rest of you, we're going to go ahead and pray together. And I know your heads are already bowed. So I come to you, Father, in the name of Jesus. And I thank you for the truth found in your word. As I've said so many times, it's amazing how something written thousands of years ago have great, such great application for us today, and that's because we don't change. Human nature is fickle. We are set in our ways. And if one thing that the cross calls us to do is to change the way we do things, it's the way that we relate with one another, to live in an entirely new way, to live as Christ would live. And so, Father, I pray for all those online and those in this place today who are who are thinking about their earthly relationships. And so I pray today, Father, for every marriage, that you would tear down walls and obstacles that are pre preventing couples from connecting in meaningful ways. I pray for the husband who is harsh, for the wife who will never submit. Father, I pray for every child today who's growing up, got a lot of their own things to deal with. COVID has certainly changed their lives more than than anybody else's, and I know there's great frustration. Father, I pray that they would be mindful of their parents and the frustrations that they go through, and that they would respond and reply to their parents' requests, and they would do them quickly, and they would do them with joy. And Father, I pray for every parent that they would not exasperate their children or discourage them in any way. 
Father, I pray for every employee and employer here, for those who own businesses, that they would treat their employees justly, with respect, that they would share the blessings that God has blessed them with. And for every employer, that we go to work every day, we would take a new mindset with us that I am coming today to work as unto the Lord and I'm going to give it the best that I can give it with the best attitude possible. And Father, I know if that's the approach that we take every day, we are going to prosper personally. We are going to be promoted. We are going to move up. And I thank you for that promise. Lord, I pray for every member of this body of Christ in our relationships with one another. I am fully aware that not every human being is our cup of tea. We may not always relate well with some people, why we relate very well with others. It's because we're all different. You've created us all different. But God, you've called us to love one another. And I ask in the name of Jesus that love would permeate this place, person to person, family to family, age bracket to age bracket, Lord, that we would learn to love one another in a way that it would be a sight to behold. I thank you for the love in this church family, Lord. I feel it. I experience it. I want everyone to feel it and experience it like I have had the ability to do, and I thank you for that, Lord. Let love be the thing that drives us in all that we do. And Father, for anyone who's watching online or here today who does not know you, I pray that they'd have the courage to, to pray a prayer of belief and confession and receive Jesus as Lord and Savior today that you would change their hearts, that you would empower them with your spirit, and that they would begin to live a new kind of a life, a life that would bring honor and glory to you. Well, Father, as we leave here today, I want to thank you for my church family. I want to thank you for their faithfulness for coming here today. Thank you for those who are watching online. I look forward to the day when we can all gather back together again, to which time that happens, Lord, I pray that you would just be with them that your spirit would guide and direct their steps, the places they go, the things they do, the conversations that they have, that they would be uplifting, that they would be encouraging, and they would not, they would, they would tear, they would not tear people down, but would build people up. I ask also, Lord, that you will give us opportunities to share your goodness with someone else. Open up a door for someone to ask the right questions so that we can share your goodness and we can invite them into the house of God and that they can become in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Most importantly, Lord, I pray that you'll keep us safe until we gather together again. I ask protection over COVID. I ask protection over accidents and diseases and, and things that might befall us between now and next Sunday. Keep us safe until we gather together again and that we can worship you together in spirit and in truth. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your spirit which strengthens and guides us. I thank you that we have a purpose and we have a reason for living. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you've done for me. Thank you for giving me new life. And thank you for the opportunity to share the goodness of your word with this congregation week after week. We give this day to you. We give our lives to you. We ask you to guide and direct us and, and anoint us to do those things that you've called us to do. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being here. God bless you.